I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Caroline Weller is the founder of Banjanan and a favorite of our clients. Caroline called in from Jaipur, India during quarantine and we talked about how she started in the industry, her family's big adventure in India that turned into her future, and what she's been designing in preparation for reopening. Caroline Weller, I am so excited to talk to you in India. I'm super excited to talk to you in Charlotte. I was, I was just wondering today actually, because the first time that I ever came to Charlotte was probably around this time of year. And I remember that all the horse chestnut blossoms were out. Is that happening now? I mean, everything is blossoming. So if you have allergies, this is, it's a terrible time to be here, but it's an incredibly beautiful time. Yeah. I mean, everything, everything is blooming and blossoming. You have been in Jaipur for the last two months? I actually came back to Jaipur in February, since I, so I've been there, been here rather since then, which for me is quite a long stretch in one go. Usually, I mean, even though our home base is here and we're here as a family, you know, I travel around a lot. So, so this has been quite unusual for me to be kind of stuck in one place for such a long time. What are the regulations there and what's the situation? We're still in lockdown mode. Uh, so I think we're in, I mean, I'm going to guess and say it's something like week seven, but you know, it could be week 27 or it could be (laughs) 77. 77. (laughs) Who knows? But it's been, I, I think it's been one of the strictest lockdowns anywhere in the world. So it's, it's been pretty intense but probably with good reason. So, so that's fine. We haven't really been able to go outside. So at all, at all, I, I go outside and I do walk the dog kind of just in the street outside, but except for that, we haven't been allowed to leave the street or you can't go in your car. Otherwise they impound the car and there are police checkpoints and you know and all of that kind of thing around are there groceries delivered or how do you manage that we've actually been incredibly lucky we've got really kind neighbors who've got groceries for us and uh what's quite lovely is that we've discovered a lot of kind of local people who are making things so for instance a a farmer yeah a farmer who has a little organic vegetable patch that he's been delivering Mm -hmm that and then one of our neighbors also has some cows and is delivering us milk so it's been a nice yeah it's unusually there have been some kind of quite positive things that have come out you know from it in terms of discovering things in the community and and finding kind of new ways to get things delivered in that respect we're lucky there was an article in the New York Times in the style section about how it's the first time that most New Yorkers are meeting their neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think it's true probably all over the world. It is. It's, it is kind of a strange time because obviously it's a really stressful and worrying time, but unexpectedly all these positive things have happened. And particularly here, I mean, I'm looking out of the window now, it's, it's kind of evening time and it's the most incredible blue sky 
which yeah. you know, normally recently Never in India yeah, <laughs> hasn't happened. And but, I mean, when I first came to India, which I mean, was last century, you know, literally last century, <laughs> you know, the sky was always like this. Every day was was beautiful like this. And, and probably yeah. within the last four or five years, it's, it, you know, increasingly the pollution has gotten worse and worse and worse and, and been really quite horrific. And so one of the positive things is this amazing sky. Although, unfortunately, we can't go out into nature to enjoy it, which, <laughs> exactly. is, which is the irony, but it, it looks really nice out of the window. I have been experiencing a little bit of Instagram envy because, <laughs> you know, and well, and also from you, because you've just been oh. on this wonderful trip in um, somewhere in South Carolina. Fusky, I yeah, in the Sea Islands, yeah. Yeah. Which just, just kind of looked minute. like heaven. It looked like heaven. And I've been <laughs> looking at everyone's Instagram. And I know, of course, everyone is still locked down. But, you know, if I had a choice, being locked down by the beach would, 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 be, <laughs> would be preferable. I honest and truly started to think that I had agoraphobia or something. And I started to get afraid to leave my house. And I really thought I actually need to leave here for a minute to make sure that I can do this and that I'm, I've not lost my mind. And so... Defusky, where we were, has 200 year year round residents. It's a tiny island with no grocery store. One restaurant only open for lunch. It's, it was definitely not a luxury vacation. We stayed in a little gala cottage, but just to be outside in nature and to be able to, you know, feel the sun on you and and the wind and feel the sand was really helpful for me and made me feel ready to, you know, basically start one of the biggest battles of my life truly of my of my career I would say um in reopening yes so it was almost like a kind of halfway house for you a little bit yeah I think it <laughs> kind of was you, it was like to get you back on the road to recovery I definitely need that halfway house right now I, I can tell you tell me what's happening with the factories and things like that yeah, well, I mean, I think in the, in the beginning, the first kind of couple of weeks that we went through was, were probably much the same as, as everyone, just massive panic and stress. And I was, um, you know, I was talking to my dad about it when it, when it happened. And I, and I felt that, the, you know, the first week when it all went down, I felt a little bit like I was a contestant on The Apprentice because, <laughs> you know, it was almost like you, you, you'd been kind of sat down and somebody had given you this, this kind of ridiculous <laughs> and totally improbable business goal that you, yes, that, that, you, that you had to achieve. And they kind of said, okay, your time starts now. And by the end of the week, you have to achieve this. And, you know, all of a sudden. You have a, you have a string and <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah, exactly. a rubber band. A rubber band and, you know, and, and no cell phone. And you have to. Yeah. Get... So it, it felt a bit like that. And, you know, and I, and I was sitting here in India, you know, and obviously my, my team, some of my team is here in India. So we were working with each other, you know, via WhatsApp and obviously on the phone and so on. And then some of my team is in the UK and some of my team is in New York and then some of them are in LA. And so we were all kind of there with spreadsheets open and, you know, Zoom and on, and on the phone and just being like, okay, let's do this. Let's do that. Just desperately trying to kind of solve <laughs> this riddle and we'd feel like maybe we'd made some headway and then of course you'd wake up the next morning and and you just had to start again because <laughs> you know every, everything had changed and, yeah. and everything was so much worse than yesterday and 
So we went through, I suppose, a couple of weeks of, of that, you know, and, and I felt that, that probably would, you know, collectively we'd never worked harder in our lives. And I was reading, all the, you know, all those articles about, you know, when you're at home watching Netflix, you should read this, or maybe it's time to take up knitting, or maybe you could read a book. And I was just thinking, okay, that's some kind of alternative reality. <laughs> Wherever that's happening, I want to join that club. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I, I would much rather be taking up knitting than trying to sort this problem out. So that happened and it was very stressful. But, you know, the, the team, you know, all the people that I work with, including the stores, you know, like yourself uh, that I work with, have been really, really incredible. And I think that the, the relationships that we've got out of that have become mm-hmm. so much stronger. Also, what it really did was it, it kind of made you see the relationships that were really important to you. And, you know, some people really stepped up and were really collaborative and did everything that they could to try and find a solution and, and make things work. And then mm-hmm. some other people... You know, did not. <laughs> did not, you know, and particularly some of the, the bigger stores, some were really helpful at understanding and other ones of them kind of just just weren't. And so I think that one of the things that will come out of this is that we'll have kind of a clearer idea of people that we, we really want to work with and we really enjoy our relationships with and other people that we just think, yeah, you know what, <laughs> I, just, I well, don't think I need you anymore. I think that was one thing that really came out of 2008 for me as well was, and it was funny, we had a, there was a designer that the team wanted to pick up and I said, yeah, we used to carry that like in 2007, 2006. And they said, well, why, why did you stop carrying them? And I said, well, 2008 happened and it just was not worth doing business with people you didn't like anymore. I mean, it, it, it literally was not worth it. And so I didn't even care that the clothes were beautiful. I just didn't want to deal with the people. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. And, it, and it's, you know, it's a bit like, as you were saying, all of a sudden we're, we're meeting neighbors that we never met before. And I, I think it's it's kind of part of that that whole idea that you suddenly realize that life is really unpredictable and that yeah. some things in your life are much more important than others, you know, be they obviously family or friends or new neighbors or business. And that, you know, in these times of crisis, the things that get you through are those friends, neighbors, stores that you form relationships with. And they're really not the kind of huge conglomerates who are really nasty and you know, only think about themselves and that isn't helping you through so kind of why would you want that in your life at all going forward it doesn't bring you anything that is kind no. of joyful or happy makes getting up in the morning any easier so why yeah. do it and one thing I do know about you is that you, you there's so much joy for you in meeting and working with clients and you come to the store at least once a year sometimes twice a year and I, and I think more than any other designer that comes here, there's just such joy for you, it seems, in connecting with your clients and seeing them wear the clothes. I love, well, first of all, I love coming to Charlotte. And I, I, <laughs> we I, love come, having to you. You. I come to you more than anywhere else. <laughs> and um, yeah, the, the customers are so fantastic. And a lot of them have now also become friends, which is really nice. <laughs> But there's something, and I I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is because, you know, for a lot of the year I'm here in India, kind of working away here. So to actually come and meet with customers and see them try things on and see how things fit and see how they wear things, you know, it's such a treat for me. 
Well, it connects all the dots. It connects you know? all of the dots because one of the reasons that I started Banjanan, for most of my career, you know, I worked for quite big corporate brands based out of, of New York, which I loved and was an incredible career. And I'm hugely grateful for it and that the friends that I made and the things that I learned. But kind of towards the end of that period in my life, I started to feel kind of less and less connected with the product that I was making and the customer who was buying it because those brands were just so big and they were very mm -hmm. corporate. And, and so somehow the kind of the connection to the craft of what I did and the creativity of what I did, I just felt like I, I kind of lost that. And so mm -hmm. when we moved to India and when I started Banjanan, you know, that's really when I reconnected to that and I started to feel really creative again and very inspired by what was around me. And as you know, the, the way that I work now in a very kind of small, almost like a kind of cottage industry way with my partners here in, in Jaipur, that's so much more tangible. I feel so much more connected to what I'm designing. And part of that, I think, is meeting the customers and realizing that every piece I make is something that's real and is worn. It's not just a kind of a mm. thing that's on a, on a merchandising plan. And I just have to kind of fill the skew and I send it out and I have no idea who's buying it and I don't really care. You know, so that did all of a sudden become very, very important to me, the, the, the customer, what they really wanted, how they looked in it, where they were wearing it, how they wore it, what they mixed it with. Uh, and it became very exciting again. And somehow there's, there's just no bigger compliment than, than seeing a customer and, you know, when they come to the trunk shows and oftentimes they're wearing something of mine, <laughs> you know, it's the best feeling. It was worth leaving that corporate world behind and all of the security that it had just to have that feeling of, of, of connection to the customer again, which I really felt I that, that I'd lost. Love that. Can we start from the beginning and will you tell me where you're from and how you got started, all the things? You're English. Yes, I am English or British, I should say. Yes, yeah, so I was born in the UK and I grew up in a town called Tunbridge Wells, which is in Kent in the south of England. So that's just, it's just south of London. So it's probably about an hour outside London. You know, it's a very historic town and Kent is a very beautiful county. It's called the Garden of England. So it's kind of farming mm. and flowers and it's very pretty. And it's also a commuter town. So a lot of people uh, commute up to London from there, which is what my dad used to do. It's a very conservative place. I guess it's a bit like Connecticut or somewhere like that <laughs> outside of New York. So it's part of the, I suppose, the stockbroker belt. Very conservative. <laughs> you know, it was a good place to grow up, but it was also somewhere that, you know, from as early on as I could remember, I knew that as, as soon as I could, I would be leaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and moving on somewhere else. And did you know it would be fashion? Well, it's strange because I, you know, from as long as I can remember, I really, really enjoyed not dressing up exactly because I never wanted to kind of dress up as a fantasy figure or, or, or kind of be a princess or any of those things. <laughs> but I used to get things from my wardrobe and kind of repurpose them and sew things on our little, we used to have a sewing machine that had a handle that you turned, you know, those things, the little yeah, spot, yeah. those little singer mm -hmm. sewing machines, we had one of those. So I would customize things and I would put really, really strange clothes together. I, you know, I had a hand knitted crochet poncho, which I used to wear as a skirt. 
And then I had, <laughs> yeah, and I had a, a very traditional um, kilt, which, you know, all nice kind of English schoolgirls had a kilt. So I had a little mm-hmm. kilt, but I used to, I shortened it so it was really short. And then I wore it over a pair of jeans because I think I'd probably seen, well, I guess because when I grew up, it, it was kind of, you know, in the late 70s. So it was kind of post-punk and post-punk. So I'd seen all right. the pictures of punk. And that's what they were wearing. So I kind of put that together. You know, from yeah, really early on, I would put together these looks. And, and you had to be kind of really thrifty in those days because, and I think we're, we're kind of about the same age, Laura, so I don't know how it yeah, worked. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think we were actually born in the same year. Don't, don't tell me yeah. how I know that, but I'm pretty sure we were, we were born in the same year. So, and kind of growing up in the 70s, it wasn't an era when you got lots of new things. You know, it was very much yeah. that you got hand-me-downs from people and I had... You a, preferred hand-me-downs. Well, yeah, and it's, it's what everybody <laughs> did. You know, that's just what you did. It was normal. And um, which weirdly, I think we're going to, we're kind of going into that era again now because we're all about yeah. resale and buying something that's going to last and, and making use of it. So it's strange how we've come full circle there. But yes, yeah, so I had a lot of hand-me-downs. I, ha- I had an older brother, so I used to wear a lot of his things. And, Me too. And I was they a real, had the best things. They had the best <laughs> things. And I was always a, t- a total tomboy growing up. And, and in fact, I still am. And Me I still too. wear a lot of men's clothes. It's, uh, you know, kind of interspersed with all of my banjan and stuff it's mostly men <laughs> so yes yeah, so I used to do that in the 70s so you had hand-me-down stuff you had your brother's clothes and of course we all wore school uniform in England pretty much mm-hmm. any school that you went to you wore a school uniform one of my earliest fashion memories is that when you went to a birthday party everybody had what we used to call a long dress did oh you have God. a long dress same yes yeah, that was such a thing long dress <laughs> And it was, you had a long dress and it was made out of, well, I mean, either, either it was literally made out of a pair of curtains or it right. looked like it was, it looked like it was made out of a pair of curtains. <laughs> With like a pinafore front. Like oh yeah, a totally. Totally. Front. It was a bib front. It kind of like square neck and, and mine had uh-huh. this, this kind of white daisy ribbon trim and it was brown, <laughs> brown and orange, flo- like huge floral print, brown and orange. I love it. So I had the long dress. I had the hand-me-downs from from the brother. And then these kind of weird outfits that I put together in some kind of strange (laughs) (laughs) post-punk influenced way. It sounds like we had the same closet. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. And, and, And that was really cool. And also what was interesting for me is because, you know, no one in my family was interested in fashion at all. You know, I grew up in a, in a family of professionals. So my mum, who is now retired, but she was a doctor. My grandmother was a teacher. You know, no internet, no magazines in the house. We weren't in London. So, you know, we didn't, I didn't get to kind of go to any of those fabulous stores. But the one thing that we did have was that once a week on Thursday evening at 7 p.m., was this show on TV. And remember, we only had three TV channels in in England growing up. (laughs) BBC One, Two and Three. (laughs) Exactly, BBC One, Two and Three. And they all used to stop, which you might might not know, but at about 11, you do. Every (laughs) night they stopped at at 12 p.m. and they played the national anthem. They played the national anthem before they shut down and then they just went black. I mean, honestly, 
it's, it, it. yeah it's insane when I tell my son this he just looks at me and he's like what <laughs> talking about women <laughs> I know and I'm like yes and we had one phone he's like what um and one tv but on a, a Thursday night at seven o'clock there was this show and it was called Top of the Pops Yes, and, and it was it was a music show, and at that time it was the only music show that was on TV, and so all of my fashion influence, I think, came from Top of the Pops, and so you know, so for me, it was like Adamant and oh yeah, Susie Adamant. Too. Adamant was a really early hero of mine. So Adamant, Susie and the Banshees, which was kind of post punk, uh, incredible makeup. There was her. Debbie Harry, who also because she was American and, you know, all things American to me were exotic, you know, so all of those types of people were my icons, really. So I tried to dress like them and I sewed up little things on the the hand turn singer sewing machine. And so there was that. And then kind of as I got a bit older, kind of 10, 11, 12, it was all about the new romantics. So Spandau Ballet. Duran Duran, you know, <laughs> all of that. Um, and, you know, and my hairstyle kind of changed accordingly. So, you know, the hair would be done in different ways. Little. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that's really where, you know, all of my influences came, came from that, from Top of the Pops. And I think from the street, just going, you know, I used to love to go into town and, and just see what everybody was wearing. Um, you know, and, and so that was were really, you know, all of my earliest fashion memories came from that. And did you go to university for fashion? I did. So it was kind of strange because I didn't, you know, nobody I knew went to art school. Nobody I knew was a fashion designer. I didn't really even understand that that was a, that was a job or, you know, <laughs> that was a career or that was something that you could do. But I knew that somehow that was where my direction lay. So I actually applied to art school from boarding school but kind of on the one condition that you know oh, you, well you can apply to art schools but you have to apply to university so I applied to all the art schools and uh, not thinking that I would get into any of them and um, incredibly I got into all of them which I think was a huge <laughs> shock to everyone including myself so yeah I, I went off and, and I did a, an art foundation course which is kind of the, the way that you do it in the UK you do kind of one year where you, it's really just a creative year where you do everything from life drawing to ceramics Mm. to fashion to everything. From there, I then went on to fashion school and did four years, a four-year degree in fashion in Brighton, which is uh, by the sea in the UK. And as part of that course, you had to spend kind of a placement year, really, working Mm -hmm. in industry. And so for that year, I went first to New York because I had Mm. always wanted to go to New York. So I just kind of got on a plane pretty much and, and arrived in New York and, and started kind of knocking on doors and trying to get in to see people and kind of saying, oh, I'm just, I'm here from England and I'm at fashion college. <laughs> Can I just come and work for you for a bit? And, again, and were you afraid or were you? Well, you... I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really strange because I think pretty much everything that I've done in my life, I've been terrified of doing. But I've had some kind of strange compulsion that has just made me do it. <laughs> so I, I just went off to New York and ended up kind of knocking on the door you know, through a friend of a friend of a friend, getting the phone number for somebody who, who worked at Donna Karen. And mm-hmm. it was back in the days when they just launched DKNY, mm-hmm. which at that point in time was kind of the hot thing. 
And so I rang them up and said, oh, you know, you don't know me, but I'm here. And can I just come and do something? And they said yes, which was amazing. So I kind of went to work, uh, well, as an intern, I guess, at, at Donna Karen for a few months and completely fell in love with New York. And then I went to Paris and kind of did the same thing, just knocked on doors and went to work for a a kind of trend forecasting agency in Paris. And whilst I was doing that, I had also started writing letters to a company in India called Anoki, which is... Yeah, I know Anoki. Yes, of course, because you've been to Taipei, you know Anoki. (laughs) And um, Anoki is a company that was was started in the 1970s and was kind of fundamental in reviving block printing Mm-hmm. which is, you know, a craft here in India. So I knew who they were and I really wanted to go to India. Again, I've got no idea why I wanted to go to India, but I just decided <laughs> I want to go to India. And so I started writing them letters in in the way that you only do when you're really young and naive and <laughs> and you just don't seem to care. So I just wrote them a letter kind of saying, you know, dear so-and-so, I would really like to come and work for you. I love what you do. Perhaps I could just come to India, you know. And again, amazingly, they wrote back, because this is before email or anything, they kind right. of sent a letter and said, yes, why don't you come wow. out? Uh, and so we did. <laughs> so that was your first time in India? That, that was my first time in India. And so you did an internship with them or did you, how long did yeah, you stay? I did an internship. And again, I just kind of showed up at the airport, just, <laughs> you know, completely overwhelmed. And as you, oh know, you arrive in India, there's like a thousand people kind of run, <laughs> run at you. And I just kind of stood there, you know, like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> and then made it to Jaipur. And so I, I, st- I ended up staying in India for, for six months and I, I worked with them. And that was the first time that I got to see block printing and started to get an understanding of the craft and the craftsmen and just how all of that worked. I just fell in love with India, went back to Brighton, finished the degree course and graduated. And then I worked for a year. I was hired by a company in the UK called Karen Millen. And the whole time that I was there, all I wanted to do was to get back to New York. Eventually, I was headhunted by J. Crew. And that was probably really in the height of J. Crew. That was in the height of J. Crew. It was back in the days when it was still owned, you know, still privately owned by the um, family. By the family. And so, and it was also back in the days when, well, two things. Number one, you could quite easily be hired uh, from the UK, pretty much straight out of college, which I was, um, and given a visa to go and work in America, which isn't the case anymore. And, right. and it was back in the days when all of fashion companies still had money. So they were happy <laughs> to, I mean, you know, they just flew me over to New York for an interview for the weekend and they hired me. And so they, they moved me out to New York. And what were you designing? Uh, So at that point, I was designing sweaters and actually men's sweaters. To be honest, I didn't really want to do menswear. I just wanted to be in New York. So I just thought, fine. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, So I I moved out to New York. At that time, it was interesting because there were just there were so many young Brits who were in New York. And so, you know, pretty much everyone that was my age working at J. Crew was British. And also a lot of people that I'd been to college with had also moved out to New York from the UK. So we were kind of this gang of, of Brits in New York. Mm. And we all went out together and we all kind of lived together in these kind of crazy apartments with, I mean, ours had kind of rats and cockroaches and you know, all this stuff <laughs> that you can imagine back in the 90s in New York. 
I worked at J Crew, and then very quickly I moved over to Club Monaco from there. Again, working on menswear. And that was when it was still owned um, out of Canada. So, yeah, so we'd go up, up and down to Toronto. And then, again, very quickly from there, I was hired by Calvin Klein, still for menswear. And what was that like? That sort of fashion boot camp, I think. It was total fashion boot camp. And it was in that era because it was kind of the end of the 90s, the beginning of the 2000s. So it was still very much the era of Calvin. You know, kind of mm-hmm. at that time, it was Calvin Klein and Helmut Lang and Jill Sander. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those kind of minimalists were, were really where fashion was at. So it was kind of a, the holy grail of companies to work for in New York mm-hmm. at that time. As painful as it was at the time, and it was quite painful, you know, all of my fashion education, I think, really came from there. And all of the things that I really learned about fashion, I think that I learned there, just in terms of, you know, number one, the work ethic, Mm -hmm. because, I mean, we worked literally night and day there. And I think that also, again, at that time, it was very much about, in a way, there was some kind of pride to be taken in how many hours you spent in the office, you know, my life Mm -hmm. is my work. Um, (laughs) And we were a really, really tight group that worked together. We were all working on on the uh, CK collection. I always say it was kind of like the best and worst years of my life because, (laughs) I mean, in some ways it was miserable, but in other ways it it was kind of wonderful. And and I think it's one of those periods where, you know, you have to be really young to work like that, you know, and to kind of put that much kind of passion and energy and, and time into something. And it was also... An amazing experience to work directly with Calvin at that time because, you know, he still was very much involved in the company at that point. And so everything that we did, we had to present to him and had to be signed off by him. You know, and we I just learned so much in those meetings with him because mm-hmm. he was so focused, you know, in everything about the company in terms of the branding, in terms of, you know, even how the office looked, everything in the office had to be white. And you've probably heard the stories about I remember going and I remember one of the things is that you couldn't bring coffee from outside. And if you did, you would have to put it in one of their cups when you got into the oh, yeah. showroom. Yeah. <laughs> Which would have to be, you know, white cup, you know, white yeah. cup probably with black carbon client written on it. And not only that, but so for instance, you know, all post-it notes had to be white. Oh all, all pencils had to be either white or black. If and okay, get this: if some, if somebody sent you flowers, they had to be white. They had to be white. No. Otherwise, you couldn't have them in the office, and they had to go. Caroline, I, I respect the commitment. It's all true. Paper clips were black; only black paper clips. And and not only that, but every night, and I know this because we would, you know, often work all nighters. But there was somebody who was employed in the building, and, and he was a, a painter. And every single night, he would just go through the building with a with a white can of paint and a paintbrush, and any little mark on the wall, any little kind of smudge or scuff, he would just go around and continuously touch it up with a, with a white oh paintbrush every night. He's, he was like a human whiteout. He was human whiteout. And, you know, and as crazy as that sounds, you know, I also learned so much about that just in, in terms of, you know, if, if you have a vision, like how do you execute that so that every single part of your branding, you know, is an extension consistent. of that vision and is consistent, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, he did like he did that like no one else. And so yeah. that was a real education. It's pretty extraordinary. And then how did you get from that to doing your own collection? 
Well, from there, one of the, also one of the great things that happened when I was at Calvin was that I got my green card when I was working there. So it meant that I could be a little bit more kind of open about who I work for. And so, so when I left Calvin, I then got back into women's wear and I went back to work at uh, Club Monaco again for women's wear. I went to work for Express. I went over there as uh, vice president of women's wear design for Express. And, and stayed there for a couple of years and then went to Armani to work on their Armani exchange collection. And we went back and forth to uh, Milan all the time because, again, we had to present everything to Mr. Armani and he would sign every single piece off. And whilst I was there, I got uh, headhunted, totally kind of unexpectedly headhunted by a company in India who wanted to set up from scratch an Indian lifestyle brand that would be kind of a version of Gap or Old Navy, but in India. Hmm. Because obviously I loved India and I had traveled there many times over the years. And also as it happened, my partner, Neil, was at that time working on a, a documentary that he was filming in India. So hmm. we kind of thought, oh, this could be interesting. And so we, we did it. We gave up, I gave up my job. We gave up the apartment. We gave up the nanny and we moved over to India. We arrived there and I went to start to work at this new company with a really lovely team of people. But to cut a long story short, the, the job was a total disaster. And it was uh, 2008. So the financial crash oh happened about, I would say, probably three months after I arrived and started this job. And we just thought, oh, God, you know, what are we going to do? What have we do done? We, <laughs> like, what have we done? And uh, we thought, should we move back to New York? And, and we just kind of thought, well, because I tell you what, leaving New York for me almost felt like a divorce somehow. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't explain it, but when we left New York, I went ahead of time and, and my family followed me. And, and so they dropped me off at the airport and I sat in the car and I started uncontrollably sobbing. Yeah. And I, I have no idea why. And I wasn't expecting it. And, it and, and somehow leaving, it literally felt like a divorce. And so that had been so difficult that, that we kind of felt, well, you know, what would be the point of having gone through all of that and moving to India only to kind of shuffle back three months later with our tail between our legs in the middle of a depression in the middle of winter like why do that <laughs> but we thought no we're just going to continue the adventure let's just go out there and you know make a future <laughs> so so we moved to Jaipur and you know because you've you've been to Jaipur but it's an incredibly creative city and mm. you know it's the epicenter of jewelry design and stone cutting here in India it, you know, there's huge amounts of craft that happens here, printing and embroidery. So it felt like a really creative and inspiring place to, to move to. I started just kind of calling up all of the people that I used to work for in New York and just saying, hey, I'm here in India. And I just thought maybe I could do something for you while I'm here. And amazingly, a lot of the people I used to work for said, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Let's do a project. Uh, so I started off just doing these little kind of consulting projects for people like J. Crew and Club Monaco and people that I had used to work for, which was incredible because what it enabled me to do was to go out and explore Jaipur. I got to meet all of the printers and embroiderers. I sourced vintage tribal jewelry for, for one company that wanted to do a little pop-up in their store. So I got to meet all of those people. 
And I think because what I started to realize when I got here was that pretty much everything that I could buy here in India, whilst it was really pretty and had a great print or whatever, style-wise just wasn't something that I really wanted to wear. Like it wasn't my style. It, and also what I realized was all of my wardrobe that I'd brought with me from New York, my kind of New York fashion wardrobe, was totally inappropriate for work. <laughs> diaper or you know anywhere that I was now living or working so kind of both of those things came together and I so I started to make things initially for myself and then I went into a vintage textile store here and discovered these incredible saris that were woven in a very particular way so I flew over to the east coast of India to Calcutta to kind of track down these weavers and these incredible saris that they made. And I just bought in bulk loads and loads of these wonderful hand-woven saris, which are called Jamdani saris. Mm. And I shipped them all back to Jaipur and I started cutting them up and making them into these custom dresses. Someone that was here in Jaipur who had a store in America saw them and said, oh, I'll take some of those for my store. So I said, okay. So I started making these kind of custom uh, dresses out of saris. And very quickly, some of which I hand embroidered with a team of embroiderers. And they were incredibly expensive, as you can imagine, kind of hand-woven saris, which I then cut up. And I would place each pattern piece from the dress on a different part of the sari to get a specific part of the pattern. So it was incredibly time-consuming. And then I would hand-embroider them. Did you make money on it? Uh, no, I made no money on this whatsoever, and they took ages to make. And of course, I realised that there was no, there's no way that I could ramp up production on them because they were so labour intensive. Right. So I, I did that for a while, and then also because I'd been block printing things for myself, I started to do more block printing, and more of the collection became about block printing. And I, I got kind of more and more inspired by that, and I think because. Just the longer that I spent here in India, the colours, nature that surrounded me, kind of all of my surroundings started to infiltrate my designing and my work. And it's very interesting because I know that had I stayed in New York, or if I was living somewhere else in the world, I just couldn't design the same kind of collection that I design now for Banjanan. But, you know, every morning I go out and I walk the dog. And even just doing that, the, the kinds of nature that I see on my walks and the flowers and the different birds and animals that just kind of pop up on that morning walk all started to kind of creep into my prints. And so slowly, print and colour really became what the collection was about. And that happened very organically. And it's it's really kind of progressed on. In the beginning, it was just hand block prints that I made. And now we also do hand screen prints as well. So our designs have become a bit more complex and with a lot more colors than you can achieve in block printing and in, right. on a much larger scale. I mean, you couldn't get further from Armani <laughs> and Calvin Klein with what you do. No, I know. It, but it's interesting because it, stylistically, even though now our styles have, are, are quite feminine and flowy, there's still an ease to all of them. So just in terms oh, yeah. of, of, you know, how you can wear them and they're not fussy to put on. So in, in that respect, they still are very much in those origins of kind of, of Calvin and Armani. And I think in my kind of tomboyishness. So, yeah. you know, in, it, and one of the things, you know, you because you were asking me earlier about how much I love coming to meet the customers and seeing how they wear them. That's one of the things that I really love because I know that when I wear things, 
you know, I still wear them in a, a little bit of a, a menswear way. And I, and I kind of mix them a lot with denim and men's shirts and belts and, and different things like that. I've been coming in the store every day or so during quarantine and your dresses and your clothes that are here are some of the most appealing and appropriate to to quarantine times. You know, it's like because they're, they're happy, but they're easy. You don't have to dry clean them. I mean, they just feel really right. What do, Have you been wearing your clothes during quarantine? Oh, I have. And I'm so happy to hear you say that because, you know, right from the start when I was designing the collection, that was also my intent for two reasons. One was that our lives as a family had become kind of so chaotic and, and kind of unrooted in a way. We, we were living in Jaipur, but, you know, we also have a home in New York, but our parents were in Switzerland and the UK and, and also in the south of France at that time. So we ended up moving around a lot, kind of in school holidays between all of those different places. And it was really important to me that I was designing clothes and that I had clothes that I could put in the suitcase and, and wear in any one of those places without feeling that I had to have a different wardrobe for every place that I went to. Right. And again, you know, styling them in different ways. So when it was cold, you know, I, I would wear them with cowboy boots and, and, you know, a big cashmere sweater and that worked. Or if I was in Charlotte, let's say, and wanted to be a bit more dressy, you could put a really great shoe with it and lots of jewelry and it became something totally different. So yeah. I wanted that and I wanted them to be really comfortable because I have to be comfortable. Otherwise, I'm just not happy. So I've been wearing them a lot in quarantine and, and something also that I've been doing a lot in quarantine, which I've really enjoyed. And I think it's because I have to walk, you know, probably 10 paces from my wardrobe to my desk where I'm working. Is I've been wearing just gowns. I mean, is that yeah. crazy? But just like really ridiculous gowns but wearing them in a really undressed way so just with kind of bare feet or like today I've got a pair of old espadrilles on but with this really really great dress and no makeup so so yeah. it feels kind of great I totally totally agree with that early in the pandemic also I got a little panicked and thought oh my god they're they're not going to be any events this spring we have all these gowns and as I've gone through the gowns all, all of them are basically maxi dresses that could be worn with bare feet yes we don't have anything with sequins we don't have anything just over the top everything is really really wearable and I feel I feel really good about it <laughs> yes I mean just beautiful dresses and I think also about those long long dresses Caroline <laughs> long love a long dress I do love a long dress and after and, a birthday party in the 70s yeah, exactly <laughs> Always going to love that. Do you think it'll change your design process and sort of what you're designing and why? Well, I, I've been designing right now in quarantine. I'm still working away with my team and we're designing next spring and summer. And I have noticed that the collection we've put together for next spring and summer, it's definitely one of the favorite collections of prints that I've ever put together. And they are, and I hadn't realized this now until I just said Princess, Princess Margaret, but the inspiration for next spring and summer is actually, it's 1978 in the UK, which is the year, which was the year of the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1978. Right. And it was also 
when I was that age, we used to go on holiday to uh, North Wales because, of course, we didn't go abroad in those days. It was far too kind of, you know, chic and exotic to go abroad. So we would go on a holiday in North Wales where it rained continuously for two weeks in the summer. But it has this incredible seascape in North Wales. It's really rough and ready and they have incredible birds and puffins and all of that. So all of the prints that I've designed for next spring and summer are based around kind of seabirds 1978 and the queen's silver jubilee so i don't know where that came from or why but it's incredibly joyful 70s you know the queen princess margaret i don't know but i don't know where that came from but it's it's come out of quarantine i really do feel that when we get out of this people are just going to want to kind of celebrate and party and i know that we have to be socially distance or whatever's going to happen but I do feel that we're going to feel the sense of kind of liberty ease we're not going to want rules we're not going to want things that are zipped up <laughs> we're going to want to let loose that's I what agree. I'm feeling for for next year so I'm with watch you. out Charlotte it's coming <laughs> I can't wait who knows how we're going to see the collection but we'll figure it out <laughs> Caroline, one of the things that we do on the podcast is we ask everybody what they wore to the prom. And I, I'm pretty sure you didn't have a prom at your boarding school. We No, we didn't have prom, but we did have something called a leavers ball. Mm-hmm. We had a leavers ball. And so this was in the 80, late 80s, which was also the era of the Sloan Ranger. It, I mean, if you think of Lady Di, as we call her in Britain, but Lady Diana, um, Princess of Wales, she was the ultimate Sloan Ranger. So if you think about what she wore in the late 80s, it was very much that. It was also about Tatler magazine, which mm-hmm. is a, a British magazine that is really all about kind of aristocrats and royals. I don't know what you're, and gossip. I don't know what your version of that or what the version of that in America would be. I'm not it's just sure. Tatler, probably. Yeah, Tatler. <laughs> So it's that, and it and it's it's still going to this day, Tatler. And, it, and in the back pages, it's it's just full of it's pictures from parties, mm-hmm. and it's just posh people, really drunk and debauched, in <laughs> gowns. I mean, that's really what it is in a nutshell. And so in the eighties, it was that, but very very short dresses, obviously Sloan Rangers in the eighties. And so going to balls was a trend in the 80s, being a Sloan Ranger, a little kind of pie-crossed collar on your sh- shirt during the day. Laura Ashley, I know you're a fan yeah. of Laura Ashley, so a bit mm-hmm. Laura Ashley. And I did have, actually, the first ball gown that I got was from Laura Ashley, which, nice. yeah, which I bought at Taffeta. It was a shot taffeta, boned bodice, strapless, with a huge oh. skirt, floor length it, it was purple purple shot taffeta purple like what like orchid purple no really really deep purple and it actually had a stripe like two uh, very dark purples striped in that in a taffeta okay. and I bought that and I wore it to a, a ball with my best friend if you're really posh in the UK and you have a very old country house it's never heated it's freezing <laughs> cold with terrible plumbing all the time and so I went to a a party there and they because it was so cold they had one of those 
standalone heaters. I don't know what you'd call that, but with the bars, those those bars, I, I don't know whether it's space heater or something. And I stood because the skirt was was so huge and puffy. I, I didn't realize, but I was standing next to the heater. And the oh skirt, it, it actually caught fire. <laughs> and the whole side of the skirt, it melted because taffeta, no. <laughs> which I hope you never get to find this out, but if you stand too close to a heater <laughs> or a bare flame, it, it just catches fire and shrivels. So the entire side of that one, <laughs> one side of the dress just shriveled up. And suddenly someone said, I can smell something really bad. And I was like, oh, my God, it's my skirt. So... <laughs> So that was my first ball gown, but that wasn't what I wore to my to the leaving ball. What I wore to the leaving ball, which was at boarding school, was I was really into vintage at that point in time. And back in those days in the late 80s, there were still incredible vintage stores, you know, before everyone had kind of bought all the good stuff up. And I was really into 20s and 30s fashion. So yeah. I bought a... I think it was probably early 30s, this gown, but it was a really deep claret-coloured velvet bias-cut 30s gown. Gorgeous. It came with a little matching bolero jacket with kind of puffy shoulders. And so I found that in the vintage shop and I just adjusted it so that it fit me and and that's what I wore and I was the only person who wore vintage to the ball everyone else was in their big puffy Laura Ashley dress that sounds um, gorgeous yeah I wore that and I still have it I still have it in the closet in New York and every so often I take it out and I look at it well thank you so much Caroline I've loved talking to you and loved hearing about your wild ride (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much. I've loved it too. And I just, I can't wait until I can come back to Charlotte and see you again and see all the customers again. I really can't wait. Take care and we would love to see you soon. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.